Good morning, friends and family. I see so many new faces. It's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a co-pastor this church with my best friend, Dan Dameron. Him and his wife, Sarah, are out of town this morning. They are enjoying a wonderful time in Indianapolis with friends, and we wish them well. So if you're coming on the, the first, this is your first time today, and you're like, you know, Things look a little bit sloppy. There's a random kid up here this morning, and we made some mistakes up here. So this is kind of how our church works, right? I'm more of a people person, right? I take care of the people stuff. Dan takes care of the things, right? And Dan ain't here. So that's kind of... <laughs> but we'll make do anyways. Anyways, my friends, welcome. I'd like to start this morning with a question. And that question is this. Who is the main character of your life? Or we might say, who is the main character of the story of your life? You know, one of my favorite movie series of all time is The Lord of the Rings. Now, I'm not a true Lord of the Rings fan because I've never finished the books. And I know there's people out there who are like, shame, absolute shame. Yeah. But the reason I love the Lord of the Rings movie so much is because of this sort of all-pervasive theme of self-sacrifice and the joy of self-sacrifice in the movie. Truth be told, the movies are a dark tale. There's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of sorrow, there's a lot of death, and there's just as much of that as there is victory in these movies. But when I watch these films, I see one thing. I see a fellowship of very different people coming together from very different walks of life and very different backgrounds who are willing to work together and sacrifice for one another, all supporting the mission of this main character of The Lord of the Rings, which is who, of course, no, Frodo. <laughs> Frodo Baggins. He's mine. Just so you guys know, he's mine. Frodo Baggins. Now, Frodo is a hobbit. He's one of the weakest and most significant, insignificant of the fellowship of the rings. But he has a big task. He has to take uh, the ring, the one ring, which holds the evil of the power of uh, Lord Sauron to this mountain called Mount Mordor, which is a volcano. And it's the only place in all the world where he can destroy it. The only problem is Frodo cannot complete this mission on his own. He's so small, he's so insignificant, he would never be able to do it alone. He needs help. And help is graciously provided for the main character of our story in the movie. He's surrounded by all these powerful allies. You have Gimli, the dwarf, who's strong and brave with his two-handed axe. You've got Legolas, who's lithe and stealthy with his savage bow. You've got Aragorn, who's a hunter and a tracker. And he's absolutely unwavering in the face of evil. And of course, who could forget Gandalf, the wizard, with his magical powers and his inability to back down. Frodo has surrounded himself with powerful friends. But when I watch this movie, there's one character that stands far above the rest. Far above the rest. His name is Samwise Gamgee. Yeah, I got some friends back there like, Samwise, what's up? Right. Samwise Gamgee. Samwise is a hobbit, just like Frodo. He's not any more powerful than Frodo. As a matter of fact, he's probably the weakest member of the fellowship. He has no particular skills that make him good at anything, but Sam has something in abundance that no one else in the fellowship has. Sam has a fierce and unwavering loyalty and determination to support his friend, 
Frodo. He is unwilling to give up on Frodo, and he's unwilling to give up on the mission that Frodo is on. As a matter of fact, Samwise is the only character that follows Frodo through this harrowing journey all the way to Mount Mordor to make sure that Frodo is safe and that his mission is a success. Samwise never gives up on his friend. He makes sure that his friend completes his mission. And while Sam is certainly not the main character of Lord of the Rings, he is absolutely, without a doubt, my favorite character. Each of us is writing a story with our lives. Every single one of us. And while we know that God is the divine author of each of our stories, he's certainly directing our steps, he does give us liberty to choose some things. He gives us liberty to choose, most importantly, who the main character of our story will be, and what the supporting cast of our story will be. But here's the problem. The problem is that because we have the liberty to choose who the main character will be in our lives, often we will choose ourselves. We will often choose that I am the main character of my life. When the Bible says, and God says, that his desire is that Jesus would be the main character of all of our lives and that we would find our place in the supporting cast of Jesus's mission. I'm gonna be preaching to you today about uh, what might be a new concept for some, but I I believe is intrinsically important to the health of any thriving church. I'm gonna be preaching about the importance of church partnership, and more importantly, the joy that we can find in the fellowship of church partnership. Now, I realize those words might be new for some, so I'd like to just start this morning by explaining what I mean by church partnership And then I'll define some terms. So let's uh, read our text today. If you have your Bibles or your phones or any other tablet, turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 3 through 5. Philippians chapter 1, 3 through 5 says this. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'd like to divide how I go about teaching this concept of church partnership uh, in sort of two sections. First, I'd like to talk about us having a partnership in the gospel, and then I'd like to talk about us having a partnership for the gospel, and then I'll tell you where the joy comes in. So let's start with our first point, a partnership in the gospel. Paul says that he thanks God in heaven for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel. That is Paul's starting point. And it's important that we ask this question, what is the gospel? Because when I say the word gospel, many people have very different ideas of what that might mean. But the Bible's very clear that there is one gospel. And if I could put it in layman's terms, it'd be this. Simply put, the gospel is the story of Christ's redemptive work on earth. It's the good news of God's story in which Jesus is the main character and he saves the world. That's what the gospel is. But in further terms, the gospel that we profess is the good news that Jesus Christ, who's the only begotten son of God, he came to earth as a child. He was born of a virgin. He grew to be a man. And throughout 33 years of life, he never sinned, not even for a single millisecond in thought, word, or indeed. And this Jesus, this perfect and holy Son of God, willingly sacrificed himself on a cross 
to be killed by the hands of lawless men. And after three days, he rose from the grave, proving that he had conquered sin and death and hell. And Jesus has become the redeeming sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. It means he paid the price for us. He takes the wrath and the curse of God that we deserved because of our mistakes and our sins and our failures, and he puts it on himself. And he offers to us that if we place our faith in what he has done, that we can now be forgiven of our sins and we can have peace with God. That means we will no longer be separated from God. We can find forgiveness there and approach God again. And here's something that's even greater than that. To all who place their faith in this Jesus Christ, this Jesus who sacrificed himself on a cross, he gives us the right to become a son or a daughter in God's family. God adopts those who put their faith in Christ. And here's something even greater. It's not by any works that we have done. It's not by anything I could ever do to earn forgiveness, but it's all because of what Jesus has done for me. And so when I place my faith in Jesus, it means I'm trusting, and it's a living trust. I walk it out every single day. I'm placing all of my trust in the fact that Jesus did what I could not. He completed the mission where I could not. And so I place my faith in his death and resurrection alone. That's the full gospel, and there's only one gospel. And Paul says that he and the Christians at Philippi are partners in this gospel. They're partners in this story that Jesus is writing. They're characters in the supporting cast of Jesus's story, much like the characters that Frodo surrounds himself with in the fellowship. Christ has a supporting cast, and he calls it the church. He has a supporting cast, and he calls it the church. But I'm also aware that when I say the word church, that might mean something different to everyone else in this room. All of us see the church just a little bit differently. Some see the church as a place. It's a place to some people. It's no different than the restaurant or the grocery store or grandma's house. It's a place we go on Sundays. The church and the church building are synonymous. And when people say, I'm going to church, it means I'm going to go sit in a chair for an hour and a half while some talking head tells me how to be a better person, right? <laughs> some people feel that that's what the church is. Some people see the church as an event. Some consider the church to be this event that we go to each week. And it doesn't really matter where we go because it's the singing, right? It's the preaching. It's the fellowship. It's the praying. It's the stories that are shared. Those are the things that matter. It's something that we do. Or possibly it's something that we consume, you know? Church at home from the couch with popcorn has kind of become a thing, right? And so some people feel that the church is an event. It's no different than a concert that we could watch on TV, right? We could watch someone talk about Jesus on Sunday morning, or we could watch, I don't know, Beyonce. Who knows, right? So the church could be an event. Some people see the church as this universal concept, right? They would say this. They'd say the church is all people who have ever placed their faith in Christ and have been saved by grace all over the face of the earth. And to that, I would give a hearty amen. 
The church is everyone of every walk, of every color, of every nation, of every creed, of every language, of every gender, all over the face of the earth, throughout time. It is not confined by time or space. But some would take this wonderful truth that Jesus' church is so diverse and so broad and so big, and they would say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if I go to church and gather with the church because the church is everywhere. I can have church by myself in a field, right? I've, I've heard, hey, anybody a hunter? Hey, I'm gonna pick on the hunters for a second. I had a friend of mine who's a hunter and he verbatim told me, hey man, I don't need the church because I find Jesus out there when I'm hunting deer. Right? Hey. And some people feel that way. And they say, I can have church by myself in a field. I don't need others. You know, for some, the church is only a local concept. They would say the church is my tribe. It's my people with our theology and our traditions and our values and our distinctions. We're the true church and everyone else is not the church. And so they cut themselves off from the blessing of the greater universal church. They cut them off, themselves off from the blessing of being in fellowship with other Christians who may think somewhat differently than them and they live in a holy huddle where they say, we're good enough and you're not. So when I say church, it can mean lots of different things. But the Bible displays a very different definition of what the church is. See, God doesn't see the church as a place. He doesn't see the church as an event, but he sees the church as people. He sees the church as people, his people, both universal all over the world and all throughout time and local in specific places. God's word says this in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you, he's talking to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The church is a unique people, handpicked, reserved, chosen by God. The church and the world are very distinct. The church is composed of his sons and daughters, chosen by him, adopted by him, taken out of the world through God's grace and gathered into Christ's family. That's what God says the church is. And God gives us, through this gospel, the story of redemption, he says, you're no longer a part of the world, you're a part of my family, and he gives us a brand new identity. And for some, gathering with the church, being with other Christians is optional because they function from a viewpoint that says, the church is something I go to do, not who I am. But there's a pitfall on the other side of the road as well because some people come from the viewpoint that says that the church is what I am and not what I go do so I can have church in the field. Walking out this new identity that God gives us is very important. How we pursue living out being a Christian and being a part of God's church matters. And it matters because God has a purpose for our partnership in the gospel. He doesn't just bring us together to bring us together. 
but he brings us together for a purpose. Look what Peter says there. He says that God called us out of the world so that we could proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We're not only called to be partners in the gospel, but we're called to be partners for the gospel. And that is very, very different. We're called to be partners for the gospel, to proclaim the marvelous excellencies of Christ with our lives. So here's our second point, our partnership for the gospel. Christians have a partnership in the gospel. We also have a partnership for the gospel. God unites us to Christ, not only so that we can live together in God's marvelous light, so that we can display that light to others and hopefully bring more people into that light. That's what he wants us to do. And so we might ask the question, you know, what does a partnership for the gospel look like? Well, it looks like coming together so that we can simply display how great God is. It's the same thing that Larry was saying this morning. All these people all over the world coming together to profess how great God is. And many churches would call this type of relationship church membership. But we've chosen to use the term church partnership for a couple of reasons and very specifically what it conveys. Now, many of you are probably members of some sort of club, right? Like I'm going to pick on Noah because he's new. Noah is one of the best basketball players at Salem Lutheran Church, right? School. He's a part of a club. Some of you might have been a part of a club in high school or college. You might have been part of an academic club because of your grades. Some people might be wealthy enough to be able to be a part of a country club. Or if you're like us and we have three kids who eat a lot, you're a part of Sam's Club, right? <laughs> like, we're all a part of a club, right? You might be a member of these different entities and organizations. But to us, membership at times can denote pedigree and can denote status and exclusivity when we don't believe that God cares much about any of those things. And we choose partnership because of what it conveys. Partnership, on the other hand, denotes a vested interest in the well-being of those around us, a vested interest in the health of the church, and a vested interest in the mission and vision that God has called us to. Like, who here is married? Any of you a member in your marriage? No, you're a partner in your marriage. You're a partner in your marriage because you have a vested interest in this person's well-being and the mission that you two are walking out together. Membership says, I've paid my dues. I'm good enough. Let me in. I can rest on my laurels. But partnership has, says, I have skin in the game. It says, I'm actively pursuing life with those that God has called me to live my life with. That's the difference between membership and partnership. And what is this partnership at Convergent Church feel like? Well, I think it feels like being part of a family with all the ups and downs of true family life. The only difference is it's a family that you get to choose. It's a family that you get to choose. So what is church partnership? If I could sum it up, I would sum it up with this analogy. You know, it's the difference between dating and marriage, or maybe the difference between marriage and engagement. You know, many people sort of want to date the local church or maybe even be engaged to the local church, but few want to marry their church. Dating 
and engagement means there's time for me to change my mind and back out if things go a little bit sour, right? That's what those things mean. While marriage says, I'm here for better or worse. I am for you. I am with you for richer or poorer in sickness and in health because I care about your well-being, not merely my own, and I see a bright future for us together. That's the difference between dating and marriage. How many of you guys would say, well, maybe just people in general, how many of you would say you had a long engagement? I'm stepping on toes right now. Yeah, someone raising their hands. Like, watch, I'm gonna convince all the women with this analogy, we won't have a single man in, in church partnership class, right? It's like two sentences, like, no, the guys are done. You know, we all know that guy who puts the engagement ring on his future wife's finger. And the years go on, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, and you're like, bro, you know, when is this, when is this gonna actually become a thing? And for those five years, this man's future wife is thinking, is he really committed to me still? Like, is he really envisioning a bright future with me? Does he still feel the same way about me? Does he still value me? He said he wanted to spend his life with me, but it's been five years or maybe more. Many of us treat God's church this way. We sort of have long engagements with the church until something distasteful happens and we quickly back out and we run and find another church. We don't get in it for better or for worse. And sometimes, unfortunately, we leave simply because something more convenient comes along. So I know there's a lot of you who are here for the first time, but there's also a lot of people who've been here for quite a while with us since we launched on Easter of this year. And we've looked at kind of this last year sort of as the dating phase with many of us. You know, those of you who've been with us for a while, you know, you've gotten to know us pastors, you've gotten to know us leaders. Um, you know, we took you out on a nice date, we paid for dinner. Uh, we didn't kiss on the first night and you liked that. Like that was, right? We, we, we were sort of in this dating phase. There's some people who are sort of in this engagement phase, right? You see the promise of a bright future here at Convergent Church and sharing the gospel together and being a family and, and building each other up, but you haven't quite made a decision on whether or not you want to move forward. You know, I, I, I looked up the longest engagement on record and it was between an Octavio Julian and the Adriana Martinez of Mexico City. Can anybody guess how long they were engaged? Throw some numbers. How about 50 years? Uh, you got to pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. Pretty close. 67 years they were engaged. And some of you are like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> 67 years. Yeah, that's about right. We can do that. And some of you are asking, man, Jameson, why do you think church partnership matters? You know, why do we got to put a label on it? Why can't I just show up for the next 50 years? Well, I think church partnership matters, first of all, because it's biblical. We see in the Bible Christians tethering themselves to and devoting themselves to other Christians in a local assembly and pursuing mission and life together. We see that in every single church throughout the New Testament. But I also think it's important because you can't and you shouldn't walk through life alone. You shouldn't. It'd be like Frodo, 
trying to get to Mount Mordor, trying to finish the mission all on his own. It's nearly impossible to live a strong and healthy Christian life without being connected, intimately tethered to a local church. And it matters because the mission and the vision of this church are huge. Like We exist to connect people to Christ's kingdom and community. And we live in labor to see a day when the entire city of Owasso collectively looks like the kingdom of God. That's our vision. 16,000 people singing the praises of God. That's our mission. It might take our whole lives, but that is our mission here at Convergent Church. And the church needs you. The church needs you to help scale that mountain, but you also need the church to weather the valleys of life. We can't do it alone. It matters because we can do more together than we can do separate. And when the going gets tough, I need to know that you've got my back and you absolutely need to know that I'm not going to leave you. That's why church partnership matters. It matters because I don't think any of us really want to be in a 67-year-old engagement when we could have a committed marriage that builds toward a shared future with unity and peace and love and commitment and self-sacrifice as the foundation of that story. And on top of that, there's many tangible benefits of being a part of a church partnership. First of all, we won't be ashamed to identify with Christ and his people, right? It's very easy for us to be shy and at times cowardly when we're just on our own, but when we're surrounded by other Christians who are all in the same mission, it's much easier for me to say, yes, I am a supporting character in Christ's story. Absolutely. That's me. Many of you will stop trying to be a Lone Ranger Christian. You'll stop trying to do everything and be everything and accomplish everything on your own. Trust me, I've been there, church. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to try to do life on your own. You'll receive care and become accountable to spiritual leaders. You'll become a part of my flock, part of Dan's flock, and we will watch over you and pray for you. We will counsel you, we will care for you, and we will help you grow as a Christian. You'll be able to give and receive wise counsel to all those people around you who need you to help walk through life. You'll be part of a stronger, more unified missional effort. It won't just be you on your own going out and sharing Jesus. It'll be you and 50, 60, 70, 80, at some point 200, maybe even 1,000 other people sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people of the city of Owasso together. And you'll be given your opportunities to use your unique spiritual gifts. Everybody has something to bring to the body of Christ. Nobody's insignificant. From the person who stands up here and preaches to the person who cleans the toilets, everybody is important. Like, think about it. You, if someone doesn't clean that toilet, I'm gonna get a lot of complaints. If, if, you know, if someone just comes up here and preaches for 15 minutes, you guys would be like, oh, that's pretty good. You know? Everybody is significant. I think the most important thing, you'll be a partaker in the great joy of church partnership. Joy like that is shown to us through Paul. Here's our last point, the joy of church partnership. Let's read Philippians again. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
You know, Paul penned these words as he had just received a great gift from the Philippian church whom he considered to be his very own family. And as he prays, he remembers the story that God wrote in the city of Philippi, the story that Jesus wrote in that particular city, the family that God built there in that city. On the day that he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he's about 10 years removed from the last time that he had seen them. And the first day that he had touched down in the city with Timothy and Silas, and he preached the gospel in Philippi. On that first day, Paul walks into the city of Philippi. He sees that there's no temple. There's no place for Christians to gather. So he goes down to the river because he assumes that there will be people there to pray. And he meets a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is a seller of purple cloth. She's a, she's a bit of a fashionista, but she's a God-fearing woman, but she's never heard about Jesus before. And so Paul meets her and he begins to pray with her and he shares the gospel with her for the first time. And God does a miraculous thing. He opens up her heart to believe in Christ and Lydia responds to the gospel with great joy. And this is what it says she does. She, she prevailed upon them and she opened up her home to the apostles. And do you know what happened in her home? Her home became the missional hub for all Christian activity in the city of Philippi. A woman who had never heard about Christ all of a sudden has Christians meeting in her living room and going out into the world telling people how great Jesus is because of the gospel. The church was literally birthed in her living room, the church at Philippi. And Paul's thinking about her. Paul's thinking about the day when he left Lydia's house to pray and there was this slave girl who began following him around. The slave girl who was possessed by a demon and who would tell for fortunes, she would tell the future. She was being used and abused by her masters to make money. And he's thinking about that day when he left the house and that, and that demon-possessed girl kept following him around. And he's thinking about how she kept saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I can imagine the first time Paul heard that, he's like, yes, that's true. But she kept doing it for days and days and days and days till finally Paul got so annoyed. It's one of the few places an apostle gets annoyed. Paul gets so annoyed that he turns to her and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And the demon comes out. And that girl becomes a part of the Philippian church. And he's thinking about how after this had happened, her her. Her, her slave owners were so angry and so mad that they whipped up the crowd around them into a frenzy and they began to beat and stone Paul and Silas and eventually they're hauled into the depths of a deep, dark prison. And he's thinking about the night where Paul and Silas were in chains and he's thinking about the hymns that they were singing in the dungeons. And all these jailers and all of these prisoners are hearing them sing about God. And the, and, the, and the Bible says the Spirit of God fell upon the prison. And the Spirit caused a massive earthquake that shook the chains off of all the prisoners and rattled open the prison doors. He remembers the jailer who rushed in, who rushed in with a light ready to kill himself because all the prisoners were gone. He's thinking about how he cried out, no, wait, don't do it, we're all here. Don't harm yourself. 
He remembers how that jailer ran to him and fell on his knees and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And how Paul shared the gospel with him. And that very night he accepted Christ. Not only him, but his entire family came to God that night. He remembers the waters of baptism. It says past the midnight hour at one or two in the morning, Paul and Silas baptized this entire family. And it says that that family then took them into their home and they shared a sweet fellowship and they set a meal before Paul. He remembers this story that God wrote. He remembers this family that God built. He remembers how this church, these Philippians, when he was being beaten in Crete and when he was in danger in Thessalonica and when he was being accused in Corinth, they sent him gifts, sent him money and food and provisions to continue the mission. He remembers his partners in the gospel. He's writing to people who share in a gospel legacy with him, who have written a story together that doesn't just have a little significance, but a story that has eternal significance. This church, the Philippian church, was the first church that was ever planted on the continent of Europe. This church was used remarkably to evangelize the continent of Europe. Think about that. A humble jailer, seller of purple cloth, a slave girl, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were all used by God to evangelize the known world. So I'm asking you, what kind of story do you want to write? Do you want to write a story like this one? Seeing people come to Christ because we're on mission together, of using your home as a hub for Christian activity, of being able to walk in the power of God to see the Holy Spirit save and redeem? What story do you want to write and with whom? And more importantly, who is going to be the main character of your story? If we're doing life alone, I'm the main character. But when we come to do life together, Jesus is exalted and lifted high, and we say, you, Lord, are the hero of my story. You, Lord, are the star of my life. So I'd like to leave that question there. Do you like to live life alone, without accountability, without partnerships, without the joy of knowing others are in the fight with you? Or would you like to live life with a family who is lifting up the head, Jesus Christ? Amen. Let's pray.